Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Well, here we are. Welcome back to Rolling the Podcast. Thanks for being here. It's a dark one. It's a heavy one. And it's, you know, it's weird because it's one we've been anticipating. But having it be real has been wild. It's been a wild couple days. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Do you? I, no. I, you know what? I, I was trying to figure out, like, what made it feel so like holy shit kind of vibe since we have been talking about this for time memorial we knew this was coming yeah. we've been working with people knowing this was coming and i was trying to figure out okay what was it and i think uh, part of it is that so many people that are typically unengaged and this is not a swipe at them it's not my intention but so many of them, whether they're our friends, whether there's other people we know peripherally and we see on social media, they had swift and strong reactions, which is great. I hope you do to this news. Absolutely. But I think that was almost like overwhelming to process other people not realizing totally. that this was like in, that was in the wings my... for so long and being like shoot like them start them panicking it didn't make me necessarily panic i don't think it made you panic either but it made it almost so much no, more that's so funny you say exhaust that. stress combo i don't know what it was no, it's but like there was weird something. there's just, just like energy in the air because everyone is so rattled by this as they should be but it's weird yeah when you like work in space and you know that this has been coming and have been talking to people for months and months and months about how this has been coming. But yeah, when like there's just this collective, super large collective energy of people being so rattled and so scared and so angry. Yeah, it's weird because I, I didn't initially feel that reaction because again, I've like been expecting this. Like my yeah. mom, mom love you. Like she called me crying the morning of. I'm like, I was sitting there like, yeah, it, it's real. Like, you know, and yeah, it's weird. But at the same time, I think because at least on my end because this has been expected to see the outpour from people has been a little bit like of a I would like not relief but like it's just been energizing like to like see people you know rising up and like because like for months now I've, I've known it's been happening but nobody's cared or nobody's been as outraged as they are right now and so there is this like energizing feeling of like well, we're not going to change this tomorrow, next week, next month, or next year. Like, it's going to take years to, like, recover from this. But I'm hoping that people, like, stick with it and actually, You know, I, I, I know. think that's that's another element of it, of, like, sort of the, 
oi, is not just like the last few months of this very specific impending, you know, result and whatnot, but I think it's it's the years going up to it too. Yeah. It's the all the people specifically dying that have literally literally been mourning for years that this was going to happen and have been literally fighting for this and no one listening. And then in the same light of like everyone in 2016 that was like, Oh no, it won't be that bad. Here we Mm -hmm. are. And I think there's just so much of the, of that like shock from people somehow still. And I think maybe, you know, it's for us to not get too jaded working in the space and getting closer and closer. And the more work we do, the more, I think it can get frustrating to see people not understand something. So I think it's like definitely on us to not get so jaded that we don't understand a perspective of that evolution of getting more engaged because like there's definitely points where I wasn't as engaged and I've definitely gotten more understand levels of it through our conversations with people, through the work that we do. So I think there's that that's super important, but very long way of saying that there have been points in time like in 2020, where there were outpourings on the streets, there's a women's march, etc. Which is great when we have these big symbolic moments, but they have to have action after them. And I definitely really worry that there's going to be sort of a a big peak and then a, a big... Yeah. Well, there always the is. Not plateau, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, totally. And there always is. And I think that's what... It's it's just crazy when all this sh- kind of shit happens, even if it's like a mass shooting as bad as like Uvalde or something like, you know, people in power like sit there and they're like, OK, let the rage happen, let it pass. And then they just like go on their merry way. Some advice, I guess, for that part of it. If you are a listener and you like are so outraged and like want to take action, we will give you some action items. I also would like say, though, we can't also treat this the way we've treated a lot of different I guess just really monumental moments like we've been talking about like a really bad mass shooting like the outpour right now is great and it needs to keep going but the other thing is like we need stamina on this issue and we need in like thousand percent and in order to get stamina and like the endurance to take this and like go with it as long as we can and like work until we actually get where we need to be and like make the change like you do need to like take care of yourself and like make sure that you know you're not burning yourself out too quickly with this issue because it's really heavy and it's like tough and I think there's something to be said about making sure you're like keeping a balance and taking care of yourself there's so many things that you can do every day that are like really small that you can like mix into your day-to-day schedule like your work checklist, like email fucking Nancy at HR. And then right after that call, you know, Nancy, poor Nancy, Joe Manchin's like (laughs) office, you know, like there's, there's little things that you can do that are super small moments of your day that, you know, collectively, if we all do them can make a huge difference. There's just tons to do is my point. And then the the other thing is that like, also make sure like you're keeping a balance in your life and being able to like, take a step back, take a breather, like detach so that you can still do this like every day because that's what it's going to take you know it's definitely an everyday thing and I think one other thing along those lines is that some of this if you've been along for the journey of girl in the gov you've definitely learned about the state element in all this with us and if you haven't definitely go and listen to our episode with the states project because that's going to I would say that's going to jumpstart what I'm about to say and the learning that you need but this whole thing is going to 
require you to get a little bit uncomfortable or maybe uncomfortable is the wrong word, but learn about systems that are in your backyard that you didn't even know about because that's yeah. what knowing how those work, knowing how your state and local governments work is going to be a huge part of making change incrementally and across the board. There's going to be a level of learning that's going to need to be done in order for you to properly take action. And I yeah. want to lead right into in action item with that, which is knowing who your state and local reps are. So one action item that you can start with is going to openstates.org. You can search for your local reps. They're going to show you state assembly. They're going to show you state senate. They're going to give you the four and one on who those reps are. And those reps, those reps are super, super vital for making state laws like those laws around abortion, around reproductive rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the ones you're going to want to, on that same page on openstates.org, another action item, you're going to want to check out what legislation they've been into. What have they been getting into? What have they been voting on or not voting on or skipping votes on? You're going to want to check. And, yeah. of course, the ones that you're like, wow, okay, they're standing up. They're figuring it out or they have been. Great. Support their campaigns for re-election if that feels right to you. Check out, all, of, of course, all of the other people running if they are, again, in a re-election situation. And if on the opposite end, you discover, you discover that there is someone in office, one of those positions that is on the wrong side of this, vote them out. Let's add one more action item to this. You can see who is a pro-choice candidate by going to voteprochoice.org or checking out their Instagram. And they also have, of course, in Lincoln bio, all of that good stuff for figuring out which candidates up and down the ballot are pro-choice. They're going to have a voter guide that comes out a little bit later this summer. Of course, we'll do a run through of that on whether TikTok, Instagram, you know the deal, one that does go live, but go check out their website for now. That's going to give you that intro to it all. Mm -hmm. Yes. Other action item is mm, who tell we me, tell just me. always are shouting out. Classic. Just love of my life, Brian Derrick. And he is like literally a fundraising guru. I can't even believe how amazing he is. He's raising hundreds of thousands of dollars in like a day. But the other thing to note is that he's raising money to really, really important elections or campaigns across the country. And they're just like very specific targeted donations that will actually be impactful because oftentimes people don't know exactly strategically where is the best place to donate their money and it's very important that you do donate strategically because I don't think you should be you know sending six dollars to the DNC because lord knows that ain't gonna do anything but ain't again it? there are races and elections and candidates like attorneys general Go listen to our episode with Dana Nassel that are so, so, so important when it comes to reproductive rights and protecting them and that we need to make sure that like we are aware of what those posi positions do and that we are donating and supporting and uplifting pro-choice candidates up and down the ballot. And so Brian does a really good job at like showing you who are the best people to donate to strategically, who can win, who can have impact mm -hmm. and who can like protect reproductive rights. So he does all that work for you and you can just, you know, send your little one to two 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 500, whatever you want, dollars to these really crucial elections. So go check him out. You can follow him at, at Brian Derrick. He also has a newsletter that like has all of this and then he'll give you all the links of where, where to donate. So go check him out. Yeah, he is obviously an icon. If funds donating 
is not your speed or you don't have any to spare, do not fear because another way that you can support candidates is of course volunteering for them or, and this is my personal favorite, is supporting them on social and helping them grow their social profiles. Save posts, like posts, send them to yeah. your friends. Maybe even send, you know what would actually be a good one of this? Make a group chat if you don't already have one with your friends on IG and send stuff back and forth. Create engagement yeah. on the posts for candidates totally. that like really matter, that really need your support. Mm -hmm. That helps them, helps their engagement, helps them grow. So think of it like you would support a small business, you're supporting a candidate. Same mm -hmm. kind of mentality. TikToks so. too. So yeah, love the social social moment. Such a 2022 Gen Z moment. Ooh. And it's just a great Gen Z action item. And to that point, to that point, also one particular piece of legislation. I was about to say legislato, and I don't think that's even a word <laughs> in any language. So it's Sounds fine. Sounds like a gelato flavor. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, now I want gelato. No, me too. Now I want gelato. Specifically like mint chip. I was going to say specifically like an espresso or coffee flavor, hopefully with some caffeine boosted in there because Lord knows Ooh, I need it. Anyways, different action item is the Women's Health Protection Act. Mm -hmm. <sighs> so, mm -hmm. so, 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 so. Okay. So the filibuster needs to go toodaloo for this to happen. This is the strategy right now, which is calling, texting, emailing, et cetera, DMing. et cetera. Commenting. DMing. DMing. Posting mm -hmm. on your story, tagging these senators mm -hmm. and, and talking shit. <laughs> not only talking shit, but I want to give everyone a few phone numbers. Mm -hmm. Save these in your context while you're at it. By all means. Joe Manchin, DC office, 202-224-3954. Kirsten Cinema, 202-224. Four five two one. Susan Collins, two zero two 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 four two five two three. Wow, I literally sound like I'm doing the. Uh, what's that thing? QVC again. QVC. <laughs> that for the. What's the thing where you you bet money for the lottery? I sound like a lottery mm -hmm. person. Really, yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lisa Morkowski, two zero two, two two four six six. Six five. Not her having six 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 in her in her phone number. Just saying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm also, this is all on an Instagram post on Girl in the Gup mm -hmm. uh, a few the of podcast. Them. A, few of them. a few of them. Also, in that caption, there is like actually a little like spiel you can say on the phone if you don't know what to say. It's a little funny, but like at the same time, it's it's it'll work. We're sassy. Um, We're sassy and yeah. we like tell it. them mm -hmm. that you are mm -hmm. their boss. And like we said in the caption, we'll hand you a fucking pink slip, okay? <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> We're just ready to tussle over here. Also, just our TikTok is also doing the most right now. So go check it out. And we'll keep doing the most because we need to. And here we are. But mm -hmm. those are some of our action items. We will keep pouring these all over the place and finding new ones and finding resources and being here with all of that for you guys also dm us if you have questions but also if you have voting questions there's primaries today so obviously this is falling on election year and we need to vote about it so get ready sam <laughs> there's birds oh god she's recording outside again that's why you hear birds in the background birds. Oh but god, he's looking we, at me. he's looking i don't is it a pigeon uh-huh Fun fact, Samantha thought that pigeons were exclusively <laughs> a New York thing. 
a New York City thing, actually, let me clarify. When we were in L.A. together, she literally saw a pigeon and goes, there's pigeons here? <laughs> and I'm not even joking. She is the second friend of mine from New York City who has said that to me. She also thought squirrels, or was that you? <laughs> yes, me too. No, like, they both also thought squirrels were exclusively a New York City thing, and it's just... You guys need to get your head out of your asses, See, okay? The world oh, doesn't revolve fair. around is- you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. The main character energy that exudes from New York City, it just needs to be tamed. We can't help it. But yeah, my head is so far up my ass, it's touching my head all at the same time. It's like a big circle. Mm-hmm. However, infinitely. <laughs> but we are going to introduce you to our guest because we have an amazing guest today who does amazing amazing work she's here to talk about this overturn of roe i know everyone is looking for answers right now and she's an amazing guest to give us those so samantha would you like to introduce our guest I would love to. As Benny said, we have an amazing guest today. Gretchen Sison, sociologist, PhD, is joining us to talk about, of course, the overturning of Roe and her work in this space. We will be talking about particularly interesting, but angle, angle, avenue, argument in this space. And that actually is the argument sort of from the Republican side, the quote unquote pro-life, aka forced birth side, which is the adoption of it all. So- We'll be getting into that, as well as her work to elect progressive women to get them to run for office. So we are going to kind of jump into it all. Jump into it all. But anyways, without further ado, here is Gretchen. We are going to get into it. This is going to be quite the episode, quite the discussion. We are super excited. We know you wear many, many hats. Like, I think you might need a coat and also hat closet at this point for, like, all the, like, things. I might. I have to be careful which ones I'm wearing, too. If I'm talking about, like, my work or if I'm talking about politics, I have to make sure to switch. So I might have to switch (laughs) mid-interview if we're talking about that. Yeah, um, I mean, honestly, just let it flow on this one. We'll talk about it all. A hat for every occasion, and sometimes you can wear more than one. Maybe we'll just have one of those you stack them. Yeah. 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 It's a vibe. We're here for it. But nonetheless, you are a researcher at Advancing New Standards at the University of California, San Francisco. And before we get into the full extent of today's conversation, we do want to know a little background info. You know, how did you get into this work? What made you say, you know what, this is what I want to study, this is what I want to be researching and really getting into? Yeah, so I I don't think that you can like go to graduate school and say I want to have my job studying this what I study because it's so specific and no one would think that you could actually get a job doing that. But I will say that I'm a big believer in like really following your interests even if they don't um, even if they don't always seem like they're going to come together and you might end up with, like, like you said, a whole closet full of hats, but you know, they're all going to sort of help and reinforce each other. You know, and I grew up in a family that was fairly politically active and my mom worked at Planned Parenthood before I was born. This is something that we were always really comfortable with. And, you know, when I sort of came into my own activism and my own time in college, I had a lot of focus on studying women's lives and stories that was really compelling to me. And that's probably the most unifying thing for all of my work is really the desire to advance women's voices and center those in politics, 
in policy, in our governments, and really looking to that as a way to make a better world. So that's really kind of what what brings me to where I am now. I ended up going to graduate school for sociology, and I didn't study abortion there very much. I studied a lot of things that were around abortion. They were they were about abortion in a lot of ways because they're about how women control their lives and their futures and their families. I looked at infertility and how couples were making decisions around whether or not to pursue infertility treatments. I studied teen pregnancy and young parenthood to look at the ways that we stigmatize young motherhood and like how we can recenter the actual lived experiences of young mothers and how we talk about that. And I looked at adoption, which has really been the work that continues today. And I ended up at a research group, ANSWER, which is Advancing the Standards in Reproductive Health. It's part of the medical school at the University of California in San Francisco. I'm in the OBGYN department there. And ANSWER is a group of researchers who all one way or another, we study abortion in the United States. So it's multidisciplinary. We have a physician, we have some nurses, we have demographers, epidemiologists, public health scholars, I, of course, am a sociologist. And I think that having all those different disciplinary perspectives really gives us strength to our scholarship and totally. understanding the number of ways that different policies and different court decisions are going to impact the lives of Americans across the country. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, you know, the kind of area of your work that has really continued and become kind of front and center is adoption. You are the author of Relinquished, the American Mothers Behind Infant Adoption. Can you tell us about this piece of work, how it came about and really what your like research came to find? Yes. So it's it's coming about. My my editor and my agent would probably like it to be more closer to coming about, but it's, it's a work in progress. <laughs> and so that will be coming out from St. Martin's Press hopefully in the next year, year and a half, working on it as fast as I can. But this this project is really, it's a book looking at the experiences of women who decide to give up their infants for private domestic adoption. So when the Supreme Court justices talk about how women have this option to give away their children and expect that their children will find safe home, what does that experience actually look like for the women who end up going down that path? And that's something that I have been studying now for over 10 years and really trying to understand what the long-term impacts are over their life course. I was going to ask about private adoption. What does it mean for adoption to be private? Is there sort of a public option? No, yeah, there is. That's a good question, actually, because the two get conflated a lot. And I think it's really confusing for some people. Private adoption is what happens through agencies or individual attorneys, right? And public adoptions are effectively foster care adoptions or adoptions that are managed by the state, where the state has decided that they're going to terminate a parent's parental rights, right? And so in those cases, um, it's not the parent signing away their their own parental rights. It's the state saying that they have a vested interest in, in severing that relationship. Now, whether or not they do is, is subject to a much bigger conversation. Yeah. It's complicated, to say the least. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, we want to talk about women who are denied abortions. What percent really decides to go the adoption route? And really, what does that look like? And also, I'm like so curious. I have so many questions. Is it also like 
regional is there research and outcomes you found that like in certain areas it's different versus others like can you kind of walk us through what that really looks like yeah i would well first i wish that i had more answers to more of those questions that you just asked there is no national tracking of adoption data in this country right there is no national count of adoptions there is no national there's no data there's no central warehouse of data on who is adopted, what they look like, where they're coming from, what state they're born into. And so it's largely like independent nonprofit organizations or adoption agencies that are collecting this data. Neither of those sources of data are perfect, right? So with all that, and I say this as some, like as a researcher myself who has felt like I'm like continually banging my head against the wall, like why aren't these numbers available? And I'm constantly talking to my colleagues who are like demographers who are like, you know, like, yes, there are problems when the Centers for Disease Control, like, report the number of abortions. Like, there's some methodological problems there, and we're aware of them, and we use Guttmacher numbers, too, right? But, but like, at least there's the starting point, right? We don't yeah. even really have that with adoption. That's So I've had to get pretty creative with how we sort of contextualize some of these findings. But to get back to your bigger question about what, how, how does this factor in to women who are denied access to abortion? So what we found actually is that the vast majority of women who are denied access to abortion do not pursue adoption. They're not interested in it. So all of these women were denied access due to gestational age. So they showed up at the clinic to get their abortion on that day and they were, they were beyond the limit at which the clinic could provide services or which the state would allow them to provide services. 91% of them who gave birth went on to parent that child whom they gave birth. So just wow. 9%. Wow. So when we found this 9% number, my colleague, Diana Green Foster, who's the lead investigator for the Turnaway study, right? And the Turnaway study is a much bigger project looking at the implications for abortion denial. Um, and so Diana has this book looking at, and the adoption question was really a much smaller piece of looking at what a denial of abortion means for women. When we found this 9%, Diana, you know, are having a conversation, she's like, why is this number so low, right? She's looking at it as 100% of these women wanted to have an abortion. So right. why are 91% of them parenting? And I'm looking at it and comparing it to the one percent of american women will ever make this choice and like the half a percent of american births that are relinquished annually and i'm like why is it so high right, right. and i think what this shows is that adoption is enduringly a rare experience and has always been rarer than abortion far rarer than parenting but once you start constraining women's choices you can you can get it meaningfully higher and that's why when we look at modest differences in the options women have available to them and modest increases in their relinquishment and adoption placement rates, you're gonna get a huge proportion increase in the amount of private adoption in this country. That's so interesting. Why do a lot of women who are denied abortion access go to just, okay, I'm gonna parent this child? You know, I think women just generally are not interested in giving away their children. Yeah. unless they really feel like they have to. And I think that there is something to be said for the idea that women who have abortion are not just trying to avoid parenting, not avoid, they don't want to be parents, right? That, that, that's 
they're yeah. having an abortion because they're not interested in being pregnant and they don't want to be a parent. But I think for a lot of them, they're also just having an abortion because they're also not interested in adoption, right? The adoption totally. is not a fallback plan. They are more interested in parenting than adoption because right. adoption is viewed as this separation that's really painful. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think to that point, there are a lot of people that make the argument of, well, they can just put the kid up for adoption. That's whatever. It'll be fine, even though there's nine months of potentially traumatic experience and so much more after that. But from your perspective, why do you find this argument to be, I would say, wildly problematic, in my opinion, but rife with issues? Yeah. Well, I mean, like everything I'm going to say is going to put aside the fact that you are requiring women to continue a pregnancy that they have decided they right. didn't want to continue, right? Like, and yeah. and that's a massive thing to just be like, we're just going to push that aside for now. <laughs> right. Because True. I think like, and, and I'm not trying to dismiss that. I'm just like, because I want to, my expertise it. is on adoption and, and we'll focus on that. Like that is already a violation. And I, I want to acknowledge that even if we don't have time to like dive deeply into that. Okay. And I will say that Diana does, get much further into that in the rest of the turnaway study scholarship and what that means to be forced to continue a pregnancy that you didn't want. But I think that the, you know, what we find with adoption is that the women who want end up relinquishing their child, they are most often interested in parenting or, and they usually feel it, they almost always feel that parenting is inaccessible to them. And this is whether or not they have considered or tried to get an abortion, right? So it might be that they try to get an abortion and then they move on to adoption right away because they don't feel like they have any access to parenting at that point. Or it could be that they can they are intending to parent throughout most of their pregnancies or a portion of their pregnancies or hoping to parent. And then that becomes untenable for them. Yeah. And that's usually the tipping point. You have more relinquishing mothers who want to parent than want to have had an abortion. Adoption is not really anyone's first choice, right? Right. If abortion is inaccessible or illegal, it's a possible backup plan, but it's not even usually people's plan B, right? It's most people's plan C. Yeah. And if you want to parent and you feel like you don't have the resources or support to do that, then again, you will turn to adoption as a solution at a point in pregnancy where most women don't even have legal access to abortion anymore. Mm-hmm. Due to Roe being overturned, do you guys expect to see more adoptions? What is your research telling you? What what do you predict will happen on the yeah. adoption front? So there's a lot of unknowns. We, it's hard to know how many women are actually going to be denied access to abortion, mm-hmm. right? It, prohibitively. Current estimate, the current best estimate that I've seen is about 13% of adoptions, which seems small, but is you know, over 100,000 American people who need abortion care. So if that number is accurate and our 9% is accurate, you're looking at about nine to 10,000 additional adoption relinquishments per year. Now, when you talk about the fact that there are currently 850 to 900,000 abortions per year, right? This is a small number. It is about a 50% increase in the number of domestic adoption relinquishments. There's only about 18 to 22,000 every year for the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Again, these are estimates. We don't actually have real numbers, right? But, you know, this would be a, this would be both a comparatively small number of cases compared to the number of abortions that will still happen, certainly compared to the number of people that will be parenting as a result of abortion denial. 
but it will still be a large portion increase in the rate of adoption. Yeah. Is there, I don't know, the infrastructure in place to support that, would you say, the adoption? Yeah, I'm not, I, I, get, I get asked this question a lot, and I, yeah. I'm not worried about this, right? Because one thing I don't think people understand is that there are about eight to, I've seen as high as 30 or 45 waiting families for every available infant right now. So in this Supreme Court brief, they cited study from 2002 that said there were about a million American women who wanted to adopt a child, prospective adoptive mothers. That year, there were only 22,000 private domestic relinquishments, right? Some of those, I mean, there would have been more international adoptions too, but like that's 45 to one, right? If that number is even close to true, it's, it, you know, my, in that range, you have so many more families that are willing and wanting to adopt children than there are infants available that it's not, it's just not going to be, Yeah, that's not going to be the problem. What yeah. I'm actually concerned about is, is how women and, and pregnant people and the adopted children are treated when they're interacting with this system, right? I am mm. like, that is my much bigger concern in this equation. Yeah, I mean, I think private adoption agencies are probably going to be ready and eager for there to be more infants available. They're not, yeah. it's not taking them a lot to scale, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the system is serving people well. Right, right. yeah. Just because it can handle it doesn't mean it's doing a good job. I mean, I would, I would say that most agencies aren't doing a good job now with their current demand. So, yeah. Do you think there's like a reason for that? Like, is it a funding issue? Is it just like poorly organized? Is there anything that's like a root cause there? I mean, I think that people who participate in adoption provision just really believe adoption to be a social good, right? They think that they're doing a very okay. good thing by facilitating these adoptions and you know, th there's a history of this with adoption, like under the most like coercive of circumstances, right? Like, gosh, when you look at these like deeply abusive removals of Native American and Indian children from their families and their tribes to be sent to schools, like, I mean, this was effectively cultural genocide, right. but, and I don't want to make excuses about good intention for most people involved. But when you look at like the history of social work, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, this is going to be good for them, right? This is gonna help them assimilate into white culture and this is going to be good, right? When when you look at like the orphan trains that were managed in like the, you know, the late, the latter half of the 19th century, like this was a social welfare institution. They were gonna ship all these poor children away from their families and send them out to the Midwest yeah. and offer them this free labor to these families. And this is gonna be great for, this is viewed as like a positive initiative, right? Yeah, and well, so it's like pro-life movement is about too. It's like them thinking they're doing this social good and it's actually really harmful. Yeah. And I, I think, so I think that the people involved truly believe that adoption is, is a good outcome. I don't think that that is borne out in what we hear from the stories of relinquishing mothers and a lot of adopted people. Mm -hmm. Well, moving to sort of the preparation for this, we were talking about this earlier of just how we knew this decision was coming for quite, quite, quite some time. But from a research perspective, how, you know, how have you prepared for this decision to come to light? How has your research sort of been 
put into place to perhaps combat what we're now going to be dealing with? Well, I will say a lot of these papers that I've tried to pull together in the last year, I was like, well, I need to get this out. I need to get these numbers together now. I need to get them published now because we need we need a, a row baseline, right? Before this is overturned, right? So that's one thing that we've been working to do is what does adoption look like now? What are the rates? How do they compare to abortion rates? And who is relinquishing under what circumstances? Right? What does that practice look like? That's a large part of what I have been trying to do as far as my research. Now, you know, the the turnaway study, as it again was a was a big study and you know started actually before I even finished graduate school and, and has a lot going on. And the intention was to respond to some claims that then Justice Kennedy had made in early Supreme Court decisions that sort of presumed that women would incur harm by having an abortion, right? That it would be harmful to them and their psyche in an enduring way. And effectively, what the Turnaway study was designed was, is this true? Like, is abortion harmful to women? In comparison, not to women who don't get abortions or don't need or want abortions, in comparison to women who are denied the abortions that they do want, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have women who want to have abortions and you have a group that is within one week of the gestational limit and thus able to get their abortion. And then you have another group that is just over the gestational limit and thus unable to get their abortion. So they're only a you know handful of days different in their right. pregnancy. How does that then impact the rest of their lives, right? That's you crazy. can't compare them to women who don't need abortions or who aren't at risk of right. unplanned pregnancy, right? Like you have to look at what happens when they're denied the care that they want versus when they get the care that they want. And, you know, what we found is that abortion denial is really enduringly detrimental to women to their, it is harmful to their economic outcomes. They have poor relationships. They have weaker bonding with their children. They, you know, they just do more poorly on almost every measure. And if the intention was to look at if abortion harmed women and their mental health, the answer was no, right? They do not do more poorly than the group that's denied care. And so that was sort of the body of work that we were trying to build towards. And then I, you know, Diana and I kind of carved out, I was like, well, I need to look at adoption because that's sort of always my wheelhouse in our, in our bigger research group. And I don't know that anyone anticipated that that was actually going to be the piece. I mean, I didn't, that that was <laughs> the piece that the justices really latched onto. And, and it was my husband and I were listening to the oral arguments for Dobbs back in early December. And we, you know, we're listening to Justice Coney Barrett ask all of these questions about private relinquishment and about what that means for women and can't they just use safe havens? And, you know, if, if, if families are available, doesn't that avert the burden of parenthood for these women? And my husband told me, he goes, I think you should maybe send out your proposal. Like maybe today you should just <laughs> yeah. thank Justice Coney Barrett for my book that I'm trying to get out in the world as quickly as possible. But thank her for something, I guess, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that I do, but ironically, at least, you know, I think that, I think that it was surprising to a lot of people how big a part of the arguments that was and the fact that that played a role in the decision. So that was actually the piece that ended up being cited in the dissent 
for the decision was this piece that only 9% of women who are denied access to abortion relinquish, right? Women just are not interested in this. This is not their backup plan. The availability of families does not impact whether or not they feel they need abortion care. And, and so I think that that was, you know, I think getting that out in the world before this decision came down was important. I'm yeah. glad we did. But it does feel a little bit like you're just measuring how fast the Titanic is sinking sometimes. Yeah, um, totally. That's what I do on my political work to <laughs> to try to yeah. correct first, but that's separate. Yeah. yeah. Well, we will definitely get into the political work as well. But before we do, we did want to talk about sort of the media element of this, because we know you've touched on that as well in your work, which I personally find so interesting because the two of us are like marketers in our blood. Like we media marketing, we're like, oh, my God, give us the fun facts. And so you've investigated really through the abortion on screen program, whether depictions of abortion in America, you know, how they've sort of evolved over the years and also how that's impacted how people view it and I'm just so curious you know what have you found through that work what are the general connections between you know media portrayals and where the American public sort of lands you know is there also differences too in sort of that digestion of media and how you know women feel about it or men you know are there layers to that yeah I mean so this is the part of my job that is the you know, when I was talking about like you couldn't you couldn't say that you wanted to have my job before I actually had it because like this wasn't a thing that like yeah. I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to study how abortion is portrayed on television. You know, it's when we started this program ten years ago. At this point, we sort of had some. We were like, well, let's let's look at let's look at TV, let's look at film, and how they don't talk about abortion. And we'll write a paper. We'll talk about how there's nothing out there about abortion. There should be, and then that'll be one paper, and that'll be it. And like 10 years later, I'm still studying this because of course what we found was that there is much more about abortion out there in American popular culture than we had anticipated. And that I think a lot of people realize. And when we started this, this was 20, at the very end of 2012, you know, and in the years since we have seen just a huge increase in the amount of portrayals that we've seen. And I think that it's often interesting what really resonates with audiences. And I think it's important to understand that like viewerships aren't aren't a monolith, right? And what could be really compelling and feel destigmatizing and exciting and interesting and entertaining to one group of viewers is gonna be really alienating and jarring to another group that's not in the same place. And so I think what we've seen with the increase in stories is more stories meeting more people where they are in a way that's really important. Do you think that the way that people look at abortion, be it people who think that in cases of incest, yes, people who have these kind of like tiers of how they support abortion access. Do you think that that's, you know, a marketing issue in a way that like women's health and abortion and even like sexual health is just not communicated, I guess, to the public in the in the right way? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where it gets back to like my core hope of just like really centering the stories of impacted people. Yeah. Because actually one of the biggest audience impact findings that we had was on a documentary called After Tiller. And this looked at later abortion provision. It looked at third trimester abortion provision, which is, you know, receives the lowest levels of public support. People are deeply uncomfortable with abortion at that gestational age. They don't understand what it is, right? They don't understand why women are getting abortions at that point in their pregnancy. 
They don't understand the doctors who do it, why they would do it. It feels uncomfortable to them. And after watching this film and seeing the stories of the women who need care at that point in their pregnancy, every viewer was almost more comfortable with third trimester abortion than they were with earlier abortion. And I think it's because the, re the stories that they saw were so resonant, right? They were, they view this as just like absolutely necessary for all the people in their care. And they view the doctors as so compassionate and, and working from such a place of care. And, you know, they saw people making space for the morning over needing to end an unwanted pregnancy, right? They saw the memory boxes that a lot of these providers put together with footprints and, you know, the ashes after cremation for fetal remains, you know, in some cases. And, and, this is a loss for these people. Most of these, no, not all of them. Some women are getting abortions this part of the pregnancy because they didn't realize they were pregnant until much later, or they didn't have enough money to afford an abortion earlier. So they needed to save up and then they needed to try to access, you know, then they needed to make an appointment and then it was more money and they needed to save up more. Right. So it gets a little bit into this denial of care, this postponement of care. That's really important. Mm -hmm. um, but people can even understand those those reasons, right? The fetal anomalies are so heartbreaking that that those stories are instantly sympathetic. You, you'd have, I don't know who you'd have to be to not feel compassion for those cases. But when you see the cases of women having to get abortions later and later for all these other reasons, in the context of these, of these other stories where people are just making the best choices that they can for themselves, yeah. for their families at that time, people get it. They get it. And I, so I think that what that shows is when you really tell people what abortion care looks like, when they understand the circumstances under which people need abortions, you can meaningfully move the needle on how they're feeling politically. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, speaking of politically, we do want to talk about your work with Emerge America. Can you give us the four on one on what you guys do? Yes, yeah, so I am on the board at Emerge America, which is the national organization. We have a bunch of statewide affiliates. We have Emerge California, Emerge Maryland. I, I, I've lost tra track of the exact <laughs> number of We're in a lot of states across the country. And we also run boot camps for those states that we are not necessarily have a full affiliate in yet. And our goal is to train democratic women who want to run for office, be ready and to provide them with a really powerful network that can propel them for their, their first run in office and beyond. We have three members of Congress right now. So we're really excited about that. And we're really, really proud of Deb Hollins from New Mexico. We like to be trained her, we elected her to Congress in 2018, and now she's our first cabinet secretary. So we're still waiting for our first senator. We came fairly close last cycle. A lot of heartbreak across the country for what happened in Maine, but you know, we're, we're, yeah. we're really excited about that. the work that our alums are doing. And I really believe in the power of electing women, electing women of the new American majority. So younger women, single women, women of color, native women, like I, this is really our focus moving forward. And I should give a shout out to our president, Ashanti Golar, who has her own podcast, which is the Black Girl's Guide to Politics. Yes. And people should definitely check out that because Ashanti is fantastic. Yes, we're on the that podcast. History Month playlist together. Love that. Mm -hmm. I do have a question. I don't know if you'll know this stat or if this stat even exists, to be honest, but just got me thinking about 
women or even not just women, but like candidates that end up losing and how many of them then decide to run again, whether it's for a different position or the same one? Like, is there any stat that shows like, okay, they might lose the first time, but now it's launched their political career. So typically they do or typically they don't. Just curious if there's anything there. I mean, I think most I don't have hard numbers on that. We have a pre- our, our alums have a pretty high win rate for first time candidates in office. And I think it's like 70%, right? Like I think, and I think that's extremely high for first time candidates. And I also think that means that, you know, a large chunk of our alums are not winning the first time or the second time. It's rare for a politician to win every office that they run for. And so a lot of part of what we hope to do by building the network is like give them the space to talk about what that means to lose and how you regroup and yeah. how you, you know shift and, and make a path ahead. I mean, I mentioned Deb Holland. Deb lost for the first several offices. Deb lost the first several offices that she ran for. Before she was elected congresswoman and then reelected congresswoman, and now she's the secretary of the interior. And that's not going to be the last office that Deb runs for. I'm going to do my best to make sure of that and to make sure that she has what she needs when she decides to leave this administration and return to New Mexico. So especially women need to have space to like not view a loss as this is no longer my career. This is no longer work that I have to do. Now running for office is not the only way to make an impactful difference in the world or even in politics, right? And I say to someone who has no intention of ever running for office and spends a massive amount of my time in American politics, right? I think it's important for everybody to kind of figure out what they want their lane to be and really jump into that because I think it's important. And if you lose, then run again or find a different space because we need all hands on deck. Yes, politics is a long game. We're always talking about that. And it does take a few losses to ultimately get to your W. For those who are curious and wondering and scared and all the things right now about what's next when it comes to reproductive rights and access can you give us either your idea of what things are going to look like moving forward but also just like action items and things people can do and chip away at every day to hopefully get us back on track to you know getting our reproductive rights back and also just on that same front if you have any resources of women who do need to seek an abortion in a place where they can't get one it's is there places to look I know we also like have our brand ambassadors looking at there a lot of them are college students and like asked us if you know we have any resources to help you know their friends who are some of them going into their first year in college and like don't know can I even go to somebody in my school for you know plan B or birth control or you know there's just so many questions out there if they have any guiding light or advice for people on what's next and how to move forward I have I have some ideas. I mean first of all there's so many unknowns there's yeah. a lot of unknowns right now I, it's not gonna be great right I, I know that much but like the exact contours of what's gonna happen state by state a lot of that will depend on who wins what gubernatorial races in November a lot we don't know yeah but as far as your listeners who are trying to figure out like how the resources that they need to keep them and their friends safe. One of my favorite resources is I need an a.com. And if you do think that you're pregnant and you need an abortion, you can go in there and you can enter your zip code. You can ask, enter the date of your last menstrual period. 
and you can enter your age because for women who are under 18, there might be additional barriers to access. And it'll tell you your closest clinics. It'll tell you your abortion funds that can help you pay for an abortion. It'll give you links to online pharmacies. If you're still eligible for medication abortion that you can get shipped to your house and, and take that via telemedicine. That's not available in every state. They'll help you with your judicial bypass if you're under 18 and you need access to that. And so it really gives you a little bit of a roadmap for the for what you're going to need to do to access care. Plan C pills gives you sources where you can order medication abortion pills. ADAC says you could actually order the pills and they'll ship and they can do advanced provision. So if you want to have some on hand, you can have that on hand. It's important to remember that medication abortion is like as safe as Tylenol. This is not a really dangerous, risky drug. And having some on hand in your medicine cabinet is not that big of like a med it's not it's not like you're carrying around an incredibly dangerous drug all of yeah. the time. It access does take a while to ship it ships from overseas. And so for people who are like eight weeks pregnant and they need the pills right now or 10 weeks pregnant and they need them right now, that might be too late. So a good reason to have them on hand in case yeah. you or someone needs them. What else? Plan B is always good to have on hand. It's important to remember that plan B is emergency contraception. You have to take it as soon as possible after unprotected sex. Plan B uses efficacy as women's weight goes up. So if you're over 150 pounds, you might want to talk to your OB or your provider about whether or not the dosing of the plan B is going to be sufficient contraception for you at that point. That's interesting. Um, plan B prevents a pregnancy. Medication abortion ends a pregnancy. Medication abortion, two pills, mifepristone, misoprostol, they are not weight sensitive. They'll work at any weight, right? So that you don't need to worry about. But the contraception part, you should be conscious of that. That's important for your listeners to know. I would also encourage them to like, not necessarily feel they need to reinvent the wheel. You know, if they are really concerned about this, there's all these like camping networks on Facebook now. Like if you wanna go camping in my state, come visit yeah. anytime, you know. We have abortion funds across this country that do incredible work. They often need practical support volunteers to help drive people to clinics, to help with house, to help with childcare in a lot of cases, just to make it more easier for people to get to their abortions. And so I do think that, you know, if any of your listeners really want to get involved, I would contact the local abortion fund and see if they're looking for volunteers to answer the hotline, to provide practical support, to help with fundraising. A lot of these organizations are like small, volunteer run, reliant on grassroots donations. And, you know, I volunteer with an abortion fund when I was in graduate school. It's just really great, important work. So. Mm -hmm. Totally. Absolutely. I also think that's besides that it's great, important, everyone should do it, all of that. That is a great resume builder too. If you are looking in college yeah. to build your resume out and also do something very important, that's a great way to do it. Love that. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. All right. Well, to wrap things up, we do want our listeners to know where to find you, where to find your work, all that jazz. Can you guys can you oh my god, can you guys? Wow, am I well? Can you give us the 411 on where everyone can find you and your work? I oh see I'm going to I'm going to be like the embarrassing millennial on this podcast because I'm like I don't have it I don't have a TikTok. I don't have a public Instagram that I really engage with. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter is G E Sisson, my last name, so G-E-S-I-S-S-O-N. And I also have a sub, which is just my first name, Gretchen.substack.com. And that is really all politics all the time. And I will tell people mostly telling people where to spend their money on politics, which races, which candidates, which organizations I think are doing really great work. 
And I will say that any candidate that I mention or any organization that I mention, I am usually funding. I am usually putting my own money behind. So, you know, and I do try to give opportunities for people to give their time to if they don't have a lot of money to give, but also just a sense of like which races are actually flippable, what's yeah. actually well, which where we actually need to be paying attention if we want to be making a difference in our government. So yeah, um, that's where to find me. Super important stuff. Well, thank you so much. This was, I learned a lot. I hope everyone else learned a lot and we appreciate your time and you answering all our questions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Top stories of the week. Let's talk about the January 6th hearings because we haven't talked about it much and that is very much still happening even amongst everything else that's happening. Some recent activity around these hearings and especially around the some news that's breaking today because there's just like some tea that I'm just happy to talk about. <laughs> so basically, former President Donald Trump was so irate that he wasn't being driven to the Capitol following his speech on the ellipse on January 6, 2021, that he attempted to grab the steering wheel of his limousine and lunge at a member of his Secret Service detail. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson testified in a House hearing Tuesday, citing the account of a senior-ranking colleague. He said, Trump, Trump quoted, Trump, Trump quote, sorry, coming in hot. <laughs> L-O-L. He goes, quote, I'm the fucking president. Take me to the Capitol now. Hutchinson, a former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, quoted Trump as saying in testimony to the House Select Committee. She also described an outburst by Trump at his former attorney general in which he threw dishes, leaving ketchup streaming down the wall. (laughs) Which honestly really checks out to me because like all that guy eats is fast food. So no, 100 percent it was McDonald's. Him being, yeah. <laughs> what else do people need to know? This Hutchinson testimony that is, honestly, I think happening as we speak. But here are some, some of the, some of the, of the tea that's coming out. Yes, 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 yes. All right. So Hutchinson also testified that Trump was informed that attendees at a Jan. 6 rally, aka the insurrection, near the White House, were armed, wanted security removed from the area, and wanted the crowd to march to the Capitol. Trump waved off concerns that rally goers, quote unquote, rally goers had been reported to be armed with rifles, pistols, knives, brass, knuckles, and other weapons. Hutchinson recalled earlier in her testimony that Meadows told her days before January 6, 2021, insurrection, that, uh, that, 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 things might get real, real bad. Wait, why does that sound like to me? Like, <laughs> All of this is to a the movie. Bone. All of this is a movie, and I need them to make a movie, honestly, about the Trump administration, honestly? like, would be great, but, like, this... This time, exactly, like, election to January 6th, I want I want a movie, and I don't know who is going to play Trump, but, like, that is, oh, my mm. God, who is going to play Trump? Well, you know what? I think, okay, if democracy survives, sure, I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> little detail, little detail, but if yeah. it does, I think it'll be to the same vibe as Watergate, where they did make a movie. Like, I think mm-hmm. it definitely will be. But I, I don't think it'll be for, like, if democracy survives, like, 10 years. So I yeah. feel like even us trying to pick the actors right now. Well, Alec I'm Baldwin looking- did a pretty good Trump. But, like, that was SNL oh. Trump. So, like, I need, like, a Hollywood, like, Oscar vibe yeah. for Trump. And I'm not sure who that would be. But I want to table this conversation and definitely come through. Maybe next next week in our intro we'll talk about our ideal casting for January 6th movie. <laughs> 
dying dying <laughs> if you guys have any suggestions dm us or comment or do the things that you know to do to, to contact us <laughs> <laughs> carry your pigeon i have a lot of them around here so yeah Speaking uh, of also hutchinson let's get back to hutchinson yeah. wait i fucked up all right, guys, I'm so sorry. I thought we had more Hutchinson, but we actually have Benny G. Thompson. Mm-hmm. So my bad. Anyways, this particular representative Democrat from Mississippi, committee chairman, opened the hearing by saying it would focus on details of what transpired in the office of the White House chief of staff just steps from the Oval Office as the threats of violence became clear. This literally, sorry, again, movie sounds like some medieval whatever. Anyways, during the hearing, Trump posted on social media, I hardly know who this person, Cassidy Hutchinson, is, other than I heard very negative things about her. Like, what the? Like, <gasps> he's literally like live tweeting on Truth Social saying that he has no idea who this woman is, who is like a very close aide to him and his team. Like, he is so unhinged. It's unbelievable. Also, speaking of Truth Social, I want to, I do want to give a shout out Ooh, to my governor, Gavin Newsom. Because. Gavin Newsom is on True Social, spreading truths about the Republican Party. And it's just really kind of iconic of him. The clapbacks and the memes that he's throwing out there are pretty, again, iconic. I'm surprised he hasn't been removed. It's a really good example of someone, aka a Democrat, actually trying to beat Republicans at their own game by meeting them where they are and also using their own tactics against them. So, yeah. <laughs> Wait, I just want to paint this picture, too, of the catch-up on the wall. There, There is... Um, oh. There is a picture to be painted. So Hutchinson, she said, I remember hearing noise coming from down the hallway. So I poked my head out of the office. She said, I saw the valet walking towards our office. He had said, quote, get the chief down to the dining room. The president wants it. <laughs> no, this is like it's already getting an Oscar in my book. Hutchinson said when she returned, she noticed the valet changing the tablecloth on the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle on the TV where I first noticed the ketchup dripping down the wall. And there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor, she said. (laughs) I feel like I'm reading a children's book. She said, the valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall and was causing them to have to clean up, Hutchinson added. So I grabbed a towel and started wiping. <laughs> so I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup off the wall to help the valet out. You work in the White House and you're you're wiping ketchup off the wall because I mean, look, you have a really say boss that you know in the 21st century you wear many hats at your jobs <laughs> and this is no exception, no yep. exception. That is the you know testimony that happened when we're speaking right now it's tuesday but yesterday for you wednesday listeners but i do also want to just address in all seriousness what we can expect from these hearings because i think people are like okay great this is hilarious this is like the next you know the movie that's going to come out in a couple years and get the oscar but what does it mean politically the justice department not congress is the only entity that could bring criminal charges against trump or his allies so The committee really gathers evidence and investigates potential crimes as well as makes criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, but lawmakers cannot themselves charge anyone with a crime. So again, the the DOJ is going to be the ones to potentially charge Trump with anything. So this, again, is a moment to investigate, gather evidence, and such, and especially for the public 
to see what's happening and to garner a lot of public opinion around the issue. Moving on to our next story, primaries. There are more primaries this week. Illinois, Oklahoma, Mississippi has runoff, Colorado, New York. So going through kind of like the where most eyes are looking this primary week. So we'll kick it off with Illinois' 15th district, Republican primary. So this race between Rep. Rodney Davis and Mary Miller attracted national attention over the weekend when Miller hailed the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade as a victory for white life. So you might have seen this video. got went a little viral. And yikes is all I have to say. And so Miller's team says the first-term lawmaker who in 2021 said Hitler was, quote, right was right on one thing and meant to say right to life what like i just can't just so no yeah trump endorsed miller and campaigned with her at a rally in rural illinois over the weekend davis has a more moderate deal-making reputation on capitol hill and davis is the top republican on the house administration committee and has served in congress since 2013 but yeah this was super problematic again you probably saw it over the weekend the video if you haven't go watch it's atrocious in every every way they did backpedal and say it was a slip up but it, it was not it was like you know it's not like yeah it's just not and that is coming from the person over here that literally cannot get a phrase right and not for her damn life i can't pronounce a single name and i know that wasn't a slip up yeah so even if it was a slip up that's what's in your brain white life right right that's the point yeah that's 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 the part okay sixth district Going on to the 6th district. Today's other, aka Tuesday's, other member-on-member primary features Democratic reps Sean Gaston and Mary... Oh, my God. See, speaking of which, Marie Newman, I was about to call her Mary, and it's clearly Marie. Anyways, Samantha Lee. Newman, who is the subject of an investigation by the Office of Congressional Ethics, is endorsed by the Congressional Progressive Caucus PAC. Democratic Majority for Israel PAC is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on ads backing Caston, because because Newman is one of Congress's most vocal pro-Palestinian supporters and notably notably voted with the squad in 2021 to oppose U.S. funding for Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. I, I really do wonder what's going to happen with that particular race. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if with all of them, but that one particularly, I think it'll be interesting. Do yeah. we do 7th District? Do we go to the 7th District of Illinois? I think we well, do. Let's, let's do it, Illinois. We're coming for okay. you. 7th District, Democratic Primary. Justice Democrats-backed candidate Kena Collins is challenging longtime Chicago Rep. Danny Davis from the left in the 7th District primary. So national progressives are excited about Collins' chances against the 80-year-old incumbent. Fuck. Why is he 80? God damn it. Uh. Who's been in Congress for over a quarter century. <laughs> the fact I'm so glad they worded it as a quarter century. Like that hits so much different than 25 mm. years. Saying 25 years, so I'm just glad that they said over a quarter century, just because we needed that dramatic effect. Anyways, leading House Democrats in caucus chair Hakeem Jeffries have traveled to campaign for Davis. Davis also boasts the endorsement of President Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Congressional Black Caucus PAC. Third District, Illinois. Democratic primary. Next one. Okay. 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 I will. I will hold my commentary. Oh, okay. The matchup between state rep Delia Ramirez and Chicago. Chicago. Wow. Okay, guys, we got it. Alderman Gilbert Villegas. <laughs> that can't be right. Just, just, mm. just go. 
right, 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 has pitted national progressive and moderates against each other. The two are main contenders for the open Chicago seat. Ramirez is the backing of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and the CPC PAC. That's the progressive one we were talking about before. Villegas, who pro-Ramirez forces have attacked as a corporate lobbyist, is endorsed by more center-left Democratic figures. So basically what we have is a progressive versus non-progressive situation. Mm-hmm. Last one here in Illinois we're going to highlight is a Republican race for governor and Darren Bailey, a farmer endorsed by President Donald, former President Donald Trump over the weekend, wants to end the state's right to abortion except for instances in which the mother's life is in danger. Well, it's so nice of him. He doesn't Aww. support exceptions for rape or incest. His opponent, Richard Irvin, the first black mayor of Aurora, said... He would allow abortions and instances of rape, incest, or when the mother's life is at risk. So sweet of them. Thank you so much for that olive branch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> laugh through the pain. Laugh through the pain. <laughs> um, oh speaking God. of pain. Okay. Speaking of pain, Mississippi. Ah, scream, scream, scream. Okay, so third district Republican primary runoff. Love a runoff. Okay, retired Navy pilot Michael Cassidy narrowly beat incumbent Rep. Michael Guest in the June 7th primary, but neither candidates broke 50%, aka the 50% threshold needed for a distinct win. Let's move to New York. Samantha, New York, take us away. New York. All right. Well, we have two primaries in New York. FYI, this is the June 28th. We've got another one August 23rd. Nonetheless, today's big focus will be the governor's race. So Governor Kathy Hochul is looking to fend off a challenge from her right by Representative Tom Swazi, who we've also had on the show. So go listen to that episode, not just because of this particular race, but we actually talked more about his current seat in Congress, which includes a position on the Ways and Means Committee and what that actually means. Nonetheless, so as he is trying to portray Hochul is soft on crime, the sitting governor, who is also facing New York City public advocate, Jermaine Williams in the primary, remains the strong favorite. I would be shook if, if Hochul didn't end up pulling. No, no hate to either of these two other candidates. I think they're both great in other ways as well. On the Republican side, the Republican side, we've got Representative Lee Zeldin, who I saw more than enough signs for out in the Hamptons this weekend, is the favorite to capture the GOP nomination. He faces a number of candidates, including Andrew Giuliani, the son of the former mayor. We are somehow still on their PR list. Don't understand <laughs> it. I'm telling you. The former mayor. Ever- the former just Rudy Giuliani. Slob kebab. He's a slob <laughs> kebab. That is what he is. Okay, 100%. Colorado. Let's get into it. Colorado. In Colorado's Republican U.S. Senate primary voters are choosing between a businessman Joe Odea and state rep Ron Hanks. Odea backs a ban on late-term abortions, but is otherwise the rare Republican who supports most abortion rights. Hank backs a ban on the procedure in all cases. Classic. So that's that. Elections are being held in Oklahoma, Utah, New York, Nebraska, Mississippi, and South Carolina today. This marks the final round of multi-state primary nights until August, when closely watched races for governor... And U.S. Senate will unfold in states such as Arizona, Wisconsin, Florida, and Missouri. Speaking of Florida and speaking of congressmen who, who we've had on the show who are running for governor. Mm. Chris, he's running for governor in Florida, and he's polling above Ron DeSantis by a point. And, you know, we love him so much. And he, you know, said that he will repeal all these abortion bans that Ron DeSantis has been pushing. And... We got to get behind Charlie Crist. He is the one that said we are are saving America. Just wanted yeah. to put that out there. Yeah. So. Look, he he knew where a compliment was going to 
was going to help. And yeah. he did get us. He got us on that. But also, in all fairness, while we do not endorse, we do very distinctly recommend looking at his platform and looking at what is ahead in Florida. So when that it comes is between that. him and Ron DeSantis. Not as much about endorses Charlie Crist. <laughs> also, well. just for news, obviously we know that the Supreme Court is doing their business because of Roe being overturned. But there are also a lot of Supreme Court cases that decisions have come out about that we don't have time to run through today. But we'll make a TikTok. How about that? We will. We okay. will. We will. TikTok. Thank you guys for listening. Again, action items in our intro run through, you know, what to do in this very scary time. Hang in there. Still make sure to have some balance in addressing this issue and fighting back so that you can have the stamina and the endurance for the long game of this of this fight. Sign up for our brand ambassador program. We are continuing the conversation there. We also have our brand ambassadors planning some initiatives on helping college girls and college women around this issue of reproductive rights and access. So we're doing it in the brand ambassador program. So go sign up at girlinthegov.com. And that's that on that. But thank you for listening. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.